0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is William H. Shaw. He is the author of a fantastic new book titled Utilitarianism and the Ethics of War. It's just been published by Routledge. As its title suggests... Bill's new book develops a utilitarian analysis of the central issues um, concerning the morality of war, ranging from questions about the permissibility of going to war and separate questions concerning the um, moral conduct of soldiers and states once war has broken out. Now, as some listeners will no doubt already know, um, a lot of the current literature on the morality of war has a decidedly non-utilitarian cast. In fact, many ethicists who take up questions about war tend to be overtly anti-utilitarian. That is the uh, standard line often is that utilitarianism is the the last moral theory one should want to go to when thinking about questions of war. and. It's this uh, aspect of uh, the contemporary discussion of these issues that makes uh, Bill Shaw's book especially interesting. Again, it's a utilitarian analysis of the moral questions arising uh, in war. Um, So there's a lot to talk about, uh, as there usually is. And before we get into those details, we'll begin uh, what we usually do. Um, Let's greet our guest. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's nice to be talking with you. Oh, it's great to be talking with you. And thanks for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Oh, I'm flattered to be here. Great. Um, So before we get into talking about uh, utilitarianism and the ethics of war, um, why don't you uh, share a little bit about yourself? Why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, I
1: I fell into philosophy in college, like a lot of professors of philosophy. I think um, not for really... Uh, exciting reasons, but I, I like the image. I didn't know much about philosophy, but I like the idea of this being the field that thinks about the big questions. And I even smoked a pipe for about two months because I thought that was appropriate for you know, a philosophy major. But, I, <laughs> but even then, I, I like philosophy, but I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And I worked in a law office. So I accepted a couple of law schools. I ended up working in the law office for a couple of years and decided it really wasn't for me. And so I thought I would go to graduate school and I had a really negative image about graduate school when I was a undergraduate graduate students were always complaining about how terrible graduate school was and so I thought maybe I would just go uh, for masters but then I was accepted to do a, a program in at the at London School of Economics and I thought well great if it's a bust you know at least I will been out of the country to London and I'll get something out of it so then I you know went off for graduate school and and as you get into it then um, gets to be the, the thing that you, you like the best and you can do the best. And so I kind of came into philosophy uh, that way. I initially began working on Marx. I was from, the I guess, the 1960s generation of, you know, 68 and political radicalism among students, and I was very interested in Karl Marx. So my, that was my first book and my early work on Marx. <laughs> but I was, in fact, you know, teaching ethics and got more interested in moral theory and less interested in Marxism. And particularly on utilitarianism, which has interested me for a long time. Then, um, you know, I've read a little bit about the ethics of war over the years, a few of the kind of most important works, but I hadn't really worked on it in a sustained fashion. And then about you know, five or six years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, be a fellow at the U.S. Naval Academy for a special program they have that invited a few professors from around the country as well as their own professors to to have a year-long seminar on recent work on the ethics of war. So I was accepted to do that and there was a great opportunity, gave me a chance to work through a lot of the more recent literature more carefully and to try to develop my own kind of utilitarian response to it. So that's kind of briefly my intellectual
0: background and how I ended up uh, writing this book that I wrote. Fantastic. Um, so let's, let's get into it then, um, the book, uh, you know, aims to address what are the sort of two big questions in, um, the morality of war, uh, debates, um, namely, um, you know, when may a war be fought or started, um, or, and secondly, um, how that is once a war is started, how may it be fought? What's permissible, uh, by way of conduct within, uh, the context of war. Um, you aim to show in the book that um contrary to what many may believe uh util- a utilitarian framework um can provide some compelling answers to these big questions about war um but uh early in the book you you note that contemporary utilitarianism hasn 't um Uh, Hasn't contributed much to uh, moral discussions of war Um, and there's a huge literature developing and there's lots of deontologists and other kinds of uh, even stoical and some uh, virtue theoretic accounts of the morality of war but not very much by way of contemporary utilitarians. uh, and in this, uh, the contemporary utilitarian seemed to break with um, what I was uh, very keen to, to learn in reading your book—that um, the historical utilitarians actually had quite a bit to say about war. Um, why don't we begin there then? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, what uh, the trajectory beginning with Bentham and, and, uh, and James and John Stuart Mill and uh, and ending with uh, Sidgwick, that is the giants of utilitarianism. Can you tell us a little bit about their, you know, how the classical utilitarian tradition has thought about war?
1: That's a really interesting question because as you say, there's a, there is a quite a contrast between the classical utilitarians who really saw war as a big issue, and it's, of course, natural for you to turn to think that way and think of the impact for, I guess, for better or worse, but normally for worse, that war has on human well-being. And even the the preparation for, if you're not fighting wars, the, the being, you know, having an army and being ready to fight a war if necessary, that too diverts resources and directions that, you know, on the face of them, aren't the most uh, effective for promoting human well-being. So. It, it struck them as naturally enough as, as a really big issue. Um, however, well, maybe not. However, but they um, they were they concerned it, in a more applied and practical way, broadly speaking. That is, Bentham spends a lot of time analyzing different causes of war and trying to think concretely of specific steps that societies could take to make war less likely. In this respect, I think Bentham was really kind of a a true enlightenment thinker because he wasn't the only, uh, he may have been the only utilitarian thinker thinking about these issues, but he wasn't the only only philosopher who was concerned about issues of war during this period. And both Bentham and James Mill were interested in developing international law in directions that would make uh, both war less likely and more humane as as it played out. John Stuart Mill, uh, it didn't write so directly about the ethics of war, but he was a very engaged, uh, politically engaged person as, as everybody knows, um, you know, briefly a member of parliament and quite uh, involved with a lot of the important political causes of his day. So he, he often commented on war. He was a, really a strong advocate of the North against the South and the American Civil War and how important that war was. And so he has got lots of interesting things to say about war as kind of um, uh, side you know side comments here and there that, that are ver- very very useful. Sidgwick, YCRC is the last of this string of great utilitarians, really wrote wrote the most about it in not in his book um, on ethics so much as his, his ma- main book on politics, right. as long about the duties of states and international law and the obligations and responsibility of states. And he, too, is concerned sort of with, I guess, what would fall into political science these days, more sort of the nuts and bolts of uh, how states should conduct themselves and what the rules and, and laws would be. But always from a really firm, utilitarian perspective, he, he's interested in what rules would it be best to, for states to follow, given the realities of the world as it is, meaning what, what rules are states likely, in fact, to uh, adhere to or be, be, be brought to adhere to. So. I see all these uh, thinkers as as really sort of engaged with with their times and trying in a really kind of, you know, sophisticated but practical spirit of of trying to, you know, address a real world problem,
0: namely that of of war and how it's conducted. Do you have any – this isn't covered in the book, but just given – Um, what you've said thus far. Do you have any thoughts about, I mean, there are lots of utilitarians doing a lot of important work in moral philosophy today. Um, I guess as a, as you were talking I started wondering like I wonder what explains <laughs> um yes. that that there hasn't been that that until uh until this book I, well maybe I just don't know the literature well I, I I I'm not aware of any other sort of contemporary book by utilitarian about war that is sort of unabashedly utilitarian in its analysis why do you think that is that's a that's a uh, that's an interesting and and good question
1: I think um, there's a couple of factors one is utilitarianism you know it's part of academic moral philosophy and so utilitarians get caught up like other moral theorists do in sort of the most kind of abstract and you might say purely philosophical questions um, whereas somebody like mill or, or even James Mill and Bentham they are they're uh, kind of activists first, or, or engaged political thinkers first, and what we might call kind of professional philosophers secondly. So they, th- their philosophy sort of in service to their their kind of political radicalism. Well, I think for most of us in the academy, um, we get tended to focus more on, on kind of narrower, narrower issues in moral philosophy and in utilitarianism. Is you know there's variations on variations of, of types of utilitarianism. You know and these are wonderful questions and, and really um, fascinating, but they do sort of divert people to more uh, away from more applied questions. I mean, there are exceptions. I think not with regard to war, but with regard to practical issues. I mean, a, a philosopher like Peter Singer is kind of noteworthy as being someone who's both a utilitarian and very engaged, you know, with specific kind of practical problems like what are actual responsibilities to aid people who are in distress in other parts of the world? What are our responsibilities to animals? But he sort of stands out as, as, as you know, somewhat distinct. There's not as much focus by utilitarians on, you might say, practical ethics, as one would have expected, and as, as – and it, nor as much as the classical – they don't pay as much attention as the classical utilitarians paid. And if I can just go on a little bit longer, I think um, – One reason those questions are hard because utilitarianism is always, you might say, hostage to the facts of what the utilitarian approach or what the utilitarian answer to a certain situation will be, will depend a lot about, you know, kind of detailed, factual questions and get into, you know, all sorts of, you know, controversial empirical questions. And I think philosophers... You know that's messy and it's sloppy and it, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and they kind of shy away from that, looking for like a little cleaner theoretical issues they can analyze.
0: Good, uh, very interesting. I mean, it's just the it's it's. I guess it's striking. <laughs> um, yes, it is. Um, um, but why don't let let's just let, now maybe the proof's in the pudding. Let let's see. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let, 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 let's see what we've got. Um, so. Um, the uh so util as you were just saying so utilitarianism is a doctrine that um in moral philosophy is hostage to the facts as you put it, and uh, as you also say utilitarianism is a doctrine that seems um uh, Sort of, because of some of its internal commitments, sort of highly mutable, that is that there are lots of different varieties of utilitarianism, and um, uh, that feature uh, maybe th- those two features that it 's uh, empirically minded practically minded, and you know admits of so many little variants. Um, Often makes utilitarianism a kind of um, a whipping boy because it's very easily caricatured. Um, so you know somebody who's who's going to propose a utilitarian analysis of almost anything has got to be very careful in setting up um, the precise contours of, of of what their what their view is actually committed to, um, which is something you of course do uh, in the very beginning of the book. You set out. Uh, uh in some detail, uh, uh exactly the style of utilitarianism that you're um interested in um picking up as the lens through which you analyze these questions of war. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of utilitarianism that um that, that we're that we're talking about here? Okay. Let me just say one thing uh in a kind of preliminary way. I, I
1: realized as I was writing the book that I, I had sort of two audiences in mind. I, I wanted to write a book for people who work in ethics of war, but as you say, have a kind of caricatured view of utilitarianism or don't really understand utilitarianism the way that moral theorists working in the field would understand it. And at the same time, I wanted to write a book for people who are familiar with contemporary moral theory and utilitarianism in particular, but aren't haven't read much recently about the ethics of war and don't really aren't really familiar with the current debate so I'm trying to write a book for utilitarians who don't know too much about the ethics of war and for those who know a fair bit about the ethics of war but don't know so much about utilitarianism so in the in the uh, second chapter of the book I just try to outline uh, you know the kind of structure and underlying commitments of utilitarianism i mean just starting at the most uh, basic level utilitarianism is a kind of What philosophers call consequentialist theory which basically means that at at the end of the day it's the consequences of our actions their their goodness or badness that determines whether our, our conduct is right or wrong what makes utilitarian a specific type of consequentialism is its commitment to human well-being as being the one thing that's valuable for for its own sake so it's it's um a type of consequentialism because Rightness is wrongness is connected to the goodness and badness of the outcomes or action, and it's what makes it the specific type of consequentialism that is, is. Is the belief that for the earlier utilitarians, human happiness, or for contemporary utilitarians, usually speak more broadly of well-being. Its well-being is that is that what makes a, an outcome better or, or worse. What. Um, I've just sketched the, the, the idea that rightness is, is a function of the goodness or badness of the outcomes of our actions or the actions open to us. Of course needs some refinement and, and specification. Um, for there's a there are different intramural debates among consequentialist philosophers and utilitarian philosophers, and I try to kind of steer away from those that I can where they don't really affect uh, so much the analysis of war but one of those questions uh, that I do take a take a stand on um, that is when we're looking at the results of our action and comparing it to the alternatives open to us are we is the rightness determined by the actual outcome of the course of action we chose or by the anticipated or expected results of that course of action before we chose and there are philosophers on both sides, and there's some considerations both ways. The um, version of utilitarianism I favor casts rightness and wrongness in terms of the expected consequences. So yeah. the right action to perform is the one that the expected consequences of, of which are better than the expected consequences of the alternatives open to us. With regard to this and some other choices utilitarian theories make, they're theoretically interesting uh, in the world of applied ethics and with regard to ethics of war, probably not so much hangs on which, which way you go as long as you try to remain consistent and, and somewhat plausible in what you're saying. The I think the main thing um, that I am concerned to stress throughout the book, at the beginning of this chapter, is that utilitarianism is a much more um, sophisticated and subtle theory than its critics give it credit to, give it credit for. I mean, utilitarians have a basic criteria about what's right and wrong that I've just stated, but they're also concerned about under what circumstances should we praise or blame someone for doing the utilitarian thing or not doing it, what motives, and uh, do we want to reinforce what character traits do we want to try to encourage? One important aspect that I think the vast majority of contemporary utilitarians agree with is that it's important to have adherence to rules um, as the most effective way in many circumstances to bring about the the most good. And in some cases, the adherence to the rules should be really, not just be a pragmatic guideline, but in some cases should actually be a kind of moral commitment so that utilitarians will find it valuable in terms of long-term results that people internalize uh, a strong commitment to following certain rules and respecting uh, certain sorts of rights. So I think um, it's that more more subtle move to appreciate the importance of people's character traits, their motivations, and of having people in in many situations stick firmly to certain rules and respect certain rights that a lot of critics uh, of utilitarianism, you know, seem kind of unaware of that whole dimension of utilitarianism. And one thing that's, are are we okay? Yeah. Oh, I got a funny message on my Skype. Um, One thing that's interesting is, you know, there are some important philosophers, you know, last 20 or 30 years who have argued along this. start, going back, say, to Aram Hare. But really, you know, it's it's not only back in um, Mill, but it's also back in Bentham. There's a lot, they, these, and certainly Sidgwick, there's an enormous amount of sophistication among the classical utilitarians. They were far from just having this simplistic view that you find in textbook that utilitarians just say, well, do whatever's going to bring about the most happiness case by case by case, and that's all there is to the theory. Um, so for some years when I was younger, I thought, oh, these are really important insights that uh, some of contemporary utilitarians have come up with and then as I read more and learned more I, I was really kind of stunned to realize that much of this was already being said back in the 19th century so there's there's really very you know there's no reason for people you know of utilitarians not to understand it's not like these are recent wrinkles in theory that we you know contemporaries have come up with but you know it's back there in Mill and, and Bentham and, and Sidgwick well just I,
0: I, it, it, it might, um, reassure you to know that um, after uh, having not taught uh, ethics for many many years, um, I, I recently, uh, you know, went back and and taught a class where we, you know, we read Mill's little um, little book on utilitarianism, and I had totally forgotten how many of the standard one-liners against utilitarianism are actually taken up in that book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes it's marvelous, isn't it? It really is Mill really answers all the kind of simple standard objections to the theory um
0: in a way that b- makes it hard to, you know it's almost like time travel it seems as if there are parts of of, of mill where you think, wow, like it, it it's almost as if he had he it's almost as if he had read williams's critique. <laughs> 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 it's hard to believe it's sort of preemptive rather than responsive um well, let me let me just ask one sort of um before moving on to the to the application of your version of utilitarianism to the questions about war um let me just ask you to sort of make one of those sort of fine philosophical distinctions um uh, that that fills the, the pages of, of, of our professional journals um, is is your view um, a well, is your view a version of what one would call rule utilitarianism or is it a version of act utilitarianism that sees the upholding of a rule as a particular kind of act <laughs> yes um, I guess
1: the, the label that uh, would apply to me is um, what philosophers these days call sophisticated act utilitarianism Good. <laughs> so it's it's act utilitarianism that's uh, in practice, is extremely close to rule utilitarianism. Right. But remains act utilitarianism because the the criterion of rightness or wrongness for acts remains the same. So an action's right, uh, if and only if it brings about more expected well-being than. You know any alternative open to you um, and in pursuing that goal trying to bring about as much happiness as you can it's it's often the most effective strategy to follow certain rules and as we talked about before to even internalize in a moral sense a commitment to certain rules so that in practice um, as you tell you want people who are committed to cert- have certain moral commitments I mean Mill himself says the most important thing from a utilitarian point of view is to cultivate uh, a love of virtue for its own sake. Right. And that doesn't sound like, uh, at face value, that's not sound like a utilitarian thing to say, not, you know, especially from the supposedly old, unsophisticated 19th century utilitarian, but he's, in effect, saying this uh, disposition has enormous utilitarian value to people who care about, say, virtue or care about, say, justice just for its own sake, not because they're... Thinking in their mind that this is the best way to bring about well-being, it's not. My view is not a rule utilitarian view because the rule utilitarian actually defines rightness in terms of actions that are in accord with the rule and wrongness actions that violate the rule. Right. So uh, the so-called sophisticated act utilitarian sticks to the um, act utilitarian criteria of rightness, but takes rules
0: very very uh, seriously excellent um one more just again just uh, a, a sort of uh, minute piece of minutiae among the philosophers right um, yeah. uh, just just to help us set up the, w- w- what uh, w- what you'll uh, contribute to the the ethics of war stuff um is it right to think um, as as I think it is that um For utilitarianism as such, um, moral evaluations are always essentially comparative, that um, the rightness or wrongness of an action is always um, an evaluation to say that some act is right. That's always a shorthand for saying that action was comparatively the best. Yes, at the fundamental level of analysis, that's absolutely correct, that the right action...
1: Is only right if it's if it's better than all the alternatives open to you um, and in some cases the right action might not be the one that brings about very much happiness but if all the alternatives are worse cause more unhappiness then that would be the right right course of action it now in practice if you really are encouraging people to follow rules and even internalize the commitment to certain rules then you're encouraging them to act in a way that um, you might say is is not particularly comparative. You are saying your general rule, unless you're in, you know, unusual circumstances say is to tell the truth or keep your promises, something like that. And so you would normally in your day to day judge somebody acting appropriately because they've kept their promise or they told the truth. Um, But when you push it back to the deeper analysis, to the actual application of the utilitarian criteria itself yes uh, you're absolutely correct it, it is it is comparative it's got to be the alternative that brings about better results than anything else you could have done
0: fantastic and that 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 um, sets up um uh your um sort of one of the main is the, the one of the the sort of core uh proposals of the book um if we turn to um the actual ethics of war stuff in the book um and begin with uh, the the, the ad bellum question, uh, the question of the morality of going to war. Um, You offer uh, what you call uh, the utilitarian war principle. Uh, You abbreviate it UWP. And I'm just going to read the principle to you and then ask you just to to tell us a little bit about uh, how it works and what the dimensions are. So the utilitarian war principle, uh, as you articulate it, says – it is morally right for a state to wage war if and only if no other course of action available to it has greater expected well-being. Otherwise, waging war is wrong. Um, can you unpack that a little bit and tell us how that works? Bob, I thought you were going to say, I'm going to read you
1: um, what you wrote here and ask you if you really believe it. <laughs> Oh, I take it you really believe it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I really believe it. <laughs> um, let me let me uh, back up just uh, on on two little points. So, I, I talked earlier about the uh, classical utilitarians and their, by and large, sort of uh, practical, real world engagement with questions of war from a kind of a utilitarian approach, but but by by and large, they don't really uh lay down in kind of simple uh direct way what the utilitarian approach to war is and so that's one thing i want to do in the book and even though the the principle is pretty simple and straightforward it's not actually stated um by bentham or james bentham or mill possibly a little bit by sidgwick um but they don't make it quite as clear they say lots of interesting things about war um But they're not going back to kind of lay out their theoretical or implied theoretical commitments. The other thing I want to say uh, about the principle is I I identify as a specific principle, the utilitarian war principle, because I want to maintain here and throughout the book that one could find this an attractive normative principle with regard to war without being a utilitarian. Right. That is one might have reservations about utilitarianism, um, or maybe lean to some other general moral theory, or perhaps be somewhat skeptical of any moral theory. And I wanted to in part try to sell the idea that this is a plausible principle for this limit for this limited domain of war that many thinkers and ordinary people might find attractive even without making a larger theoretical commitment to one particular
0: moral theory. Um, Right. So the structure of the argument is not – let's just make this clear for the audience, right? I take it um, the structure of the argument in your book is not utilitarianism is the correct moral theory. Therefore, what utilitarians are going to say about the ethics of war uh, is uh, is philosophically correct. The argument rather is – the utilitarians have a coherent moral theory, that moral theory allows them to say something that looks independently plausible about these moral questions concerning war. And one can accept that utilitarian analysis of the morality of war, almost no matter what one's broader moral commitments may be, even if they're non particularly utilitarian. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. And I didn't want a book that, which I had spent a book you know, defending or trying to prove utilitarianism, right, and, and get everybody to accept it, and then go on and say, well, these are its implications for this domain. Uh, that'd be a very limited interest. Right. So, anyway, going back to the utilitarian war principle, uh, you know, it's a, as we were saying, it's a it's a restrictive principle. It concerns when is a right for uh, a state to wage war. There are you know other entities in the world besides states that. Wage war, warlike things. I just want, for simplicity, I want to focus on the central and historically most important case: uh, war be- between states. Um, the utilitarian war principle is pretty uh, stringent. It, it doesn't just say that the war has to do some good, uh, or that it has to do more good than it does bad, but it has to do uh, more good than anything else you could do. Right. <laughs> I mean, in most contexts that just means the war has to do more good than than not fighting the war. But it, it but it sets a pretty pretty high bar. On the other hand I think, you know, people um, maybe this wishful thinking my part, but I think sort of people thinking from a common sense perspective won't find this such a bizarre idea that that it for a war to be right it really has to be better than um, not fighting. Um <laughs> uh, the uh, utilitarian principle is the utilitarian war principle specifically it's universalistic in scope you have to take into account not just the well-being of your compatriots but the well-being of everybody who's going to be affected by your decision Um, and that's something that I mean that way of thinking would bring up you know if that were accepted that would bring about a, uh, a significant change in how People think about war. I mean, historically, uh, nations or states have tended to think only about the benefits to themselves or to their citizens. They've um, thought not always about the consequences of their fighting. I mean, or if they do take about talk about the consequences of fighting or not fighting, they may be their consequences in terms of I don't know, national honor or historical grievances that they have that have little to do with the well-being of actual individuals, whereas for the utilitarian point of view, it's really it's the well-being of human beings, specific individual human beings that matters, and the utilitarian war principle is, has to, is saying that before you go to war, you know, you, you've got to expect that, that's, that there's going to be the impact on those human beings is going to be better overall because you've gone to war than, than if you hadn't. Right. And maybe a final point. So it uh, would be in, in terms of how it would change people's ordinary thinking. Is there's not as much hard thinking about what will actually be the results of war. Uh, bef- there hasn't been historically. There hasn't been as much hard thinking about what will be the results of uh, fighting or not fighting. Right. And the totalitarian war principle really invites. As careful and close scrutiny as as political leaders and others can marshal to really, you know, try to kind of game out what what are the alternatives open to us, and what are the likely results of following this course of action or that course of action? The likely results in terms of their impact on on real human beings, not just at home but also overseas. So I think uh, this simple principle, if people, you know, adopted it or, or found it attractive, would really tend to change how states think about
0: war right and it, it, just to pick up on that last point it does sound like it's um um at least a prima facie advantage of this utilitarian uh framework that um it makes the ad bellum question the question of when it's okay you know when it's morally permissible to go to war um it t- it ties it so tightly to the postbellum question right what happens when the war ends yeah. and this you know a lot of the standard discussions of war see these as separate questions that don't bear too much on each other and that does look like a kind of offense to common sense to me at yeah, least yeah that's
1: a really interesting point yeah I, I i agree with that because you've got to trace out um you know not just the immediate consequences but as best you can the longer run results of of the course of action you're undertaking, especially specifically if you're contemplating undertaking a war, you know what? How is that going to play out in the long run? And um, there are obvious limits to what we can know and what we can predict, but that should, you know, induce us to be as cautious and careful as we can be. Right. Um, I mean, standard criticism of utilitarianism and a criticism that can be anticipated the utilitarian war principle is people will say, well you know, it's hard to know what the consequences are going to be, or these are really difficult questions because the future is unpredictable and and, and all that's true, uh, it may not be as unpredictable as the critics say, but the future is unpredictable, we can't know for sure. But still, uh, I don't think that impugns the utilitarian goal that you shouldn't fight uh, unless that really
0: is the better course of action open to you. Right excellent um let's then just ask sort of you 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 have a nice discussion of um uh, the relation uh, between uh, the utilitarian war principle and its ramifications uh, and some of the, the 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 standard kinds of thoughts that just war theorists or you know moral philosophers working on war who are attracted or at the periphery or in the orbit of just war theory uh, tend to think now um, just war theory and the people who are uh, in that orbit tend to be largely anti utilitarian because just war theory tends to look like it's got an anti-utilitarian bent to it. But you're keen to show that the utilitarian war principle can accommodate many of the things that most most look worth accommodating uh, in the just war tradition. Can you tell us a little bit about those arguments?
1: Yes. um, I approach it from the fact that the utilitarian war principle, um, it's, it's simple, it's general, and it may be difficult to apply in many cases because it's hard to know exactly, you know, to predict confidently, what would be the, the alternative course of action open to us. And so the question becomes, are there some intermediate or pragmatic guidelines that, that we might follow that would help us perhaps to, uh, end up at the end of the day, you know, sticking as closely as we can to the utilitarian war principle. Let me put it a different way. That is, um, it's a criticism that has some merit that the utilitarian war principle is not so easy to apply because of these empirical uncertainties. Given that, are there some um, guidelines or intermediate principles that we might uh, rely on that adherence to which would make it more likely that we would fight wars only when this would be required by the utilitarian war principle? And I suggest that the standard ad bellum principles contained within just war theory, for example, uh, legitimate authority, just cause, proportionality, last resort, and so on, that following these guidelines actually makes sense from a utilitarian point of view. We have the idea back already in in Mill and, and probably Bentham that even if utilitarianism states the ultimate criteria of right and wrong, the ultimate goal of, of our moral actions, we need, uh, guideposts. We need guidelines to help us achieve that goal as, as best we can. And I think, um, the traditional principles of juice ad bellum can accomplish that. They, they can help us, uh, analyze in a, in a little more concrete way, uh, the question of whether a war would be right for us to undertake, because it's hard to imagine a conflict that um, satisfied the, those traditional principles but failed the utilitarian principle. That is, I think um, a war, an anticipated war, that fails just war criteria is not going to pass the utilitarian war criteria either, and one that does. Past the just war, traditional just war principles, uh, is very likely to also pass the utilitarian war principle. Yet those just war principles, being somewhat more specific, may be a little easier to employ. Um, they're already fairly well known over the centuries. They're taught in our military academies. and um, for, So from a practical point of view, people relied on those. It's very likely, they would be making decisions that are in line with the utilitarian war principle. And, just, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. A just war theorists, I mean, you know, they're different theorists and, and they approach these issues a little differently, but for them, um, these principles are, uh, they determine what's right and wrong. And from the utilitarian point of view, they are. Kind of aids or guidelines that will help us. So utilitarians don't have to worry, as just war theorists do, about getting these principles as precise and accurate as as possible. Some just war theorists are worried that there might be redundancies, and so they try to reduce the list of six or seven to four or five, and there's no quibbling about their exact formulation, because from the point of view of just war theory, we, you would want to be as precise as possible about these principles because they determine whether war is right or wrong for us utilitarians they can be treated a little more loosely and pragmatically because they don't define what's right and wrong in war they're uh, kind of rules of thumb or guidelines that the following
0: which will tend to lead towards utilitarian results right and so um, and, and it might be the case uh, and, and, and this argument does appear in the book that some of the ways in which um traditional non-utilitarian maybe just just war theorists um tend to treat some of the ad bellum, the hard cases for the ad bellum uh, principles um, look like they're just reasons to think that there's a more fundamental set of moral considerations underlying them uh, that um, are guiding uh, the ways in which people add or detract or contour the standard um, ad bellum principles. Is that right? Yes,
1: that's a a, a shortcoming I see of most all work in the broadly speaking in the just war tradition among contemporary philosophers is there's no fallback theoretical position from which to uh, examine these the uh, either the principles of ad bellum or the uh, the in jus principles um, and people philosophers writing that they end up just with appeals to different intuitions about how we would handle, say, cases of self-defense when it's an individual in the civilian world and sort of extrapolate from that about uh, what principles should govern uh, nation states. So um, George Lucas uh, used the phrase, uh, I quote in the book, um, the methodological anarchy of of justice (laughs) theory, because there's no uh, agreement about what's the foundation of these principles or how we're supposed to refine them or or interpret them. And utilitarianism offers, I think, a perspective from which you can both uh, make a case why these principles should be taken seriously um, and why they're important, but also uh, from that perspective shows the limits, that some of the kind of more arcane debate about some of the principles would be sort of irrelevant from of a utilitarian perspective, which treats them more as pragmatic guidelines, you wouldn't have to worry about a a number of kind of super theoretical counterexamples or hypothetical cases because you're trying to just get pragmatic guidelines that people could follow as a kind of aid to successfully uh, follow the utilitarian war principle.
0: Great. Um, why don't we then just uh, um, move on then to um, this other you know, separable um, uh, set of questions um, uh, about war. So we were so far just been talking about the just war principle, which is a principle – I'm sorry, the utilitarian war principle, which is a principle in the first instance about um, uh, when it's uh, morally permissible or morally right to fight a war. Um, then there are these separate questions, the so-called in bello, uh, uh questions, the, the questions of the conduct within a war. Um, and there too, like in the ad bellum questions, we've got a long non-utilitarian tradition that tries to um, articulate different kinds of moral constraints on what soldiers can do in the course of fighting or what states can do in the course of, of, of waging a war. Um, uh what can utilitarians say about these questions these these in bellow questions um can they uphold uh what you call uh the uh, the received rules of war yes um let, let me just say what what I
1: call the received rules of war there's there's two aspects to that one is what's usually called the law of armed conflict, which is you know, positive international law dealing with armed conflict. A lot of that related to specific treaties, like the Geneva Conventions, or uh, before that, the Hague Conventions. Some of it is a redevelopment of, you might say, um, kind of international common law set by precedent and tradition. Some of it of, of law of armed conflict is settled by international tribunals, like the Nuremberg tribunals, that you know made certain decisions that are pertinent from the point of view of international law to how combatants should com- conduct themselves. So so that's part of what I call the received rules of war. The other part are the three traditional principles of justice in the conduct of war, necessity, uh, proportionality, and discrimination and non-combatant immunity. Mm-hmm. I lump those together because I see, and this is a talk that actually goes back to the Utilitarian, early utilitarian or proto utilitarian uh, William Paley, who also identified sort of the law of war containing both what he called natural law or or these principles of justice in war, as well as the positive uh, law of of nations, because those um, principles of necessity, proportionality, and Non-combatant immunity, which almost all theorists in the just war tradition agree on as being basic rules guiding combatants or that should guide combatants. Those uh, inform the positive law of armed conflict. They, you know, some of the general provisions of the law of armed conflict state those principles. Others more specific provisions kind of always reflecting and filling out those three principles. So there's kind of overlap or interconnection between those three general principles and the more specific uh, requirements of uh, the law of armed combat. So I lump all together as the received rules of war, which is in the modern world is what the military of all modern democracies and a number of other countries are taught Mm -hmm. um, as the rules that they must follow. From the utilitarian point of view, the basic justification for the uh, received rules of war is the enormous humanitarian benefit that comes from tr- encouraging and trying as hard as we can to get combatants to adhere, adhere to these rules. Mm-hmm. So it's um, consequentialist or even sort of instrumentalist defense of the received rules of war. That their, more important, their moral importance lies in they're making possible the reduction of needless violence in war. The goal being to have um, <laughs> the war with uh, as with a, with no superfluous violence and indeed as, as little violence overall as as is possible. So so that's the utilitarian approach to it and. I think it contrasts favorably with various non-utilitarian ways of thinking about the rules of of war. Somehow those are supposed to be anchored into our intuitions, the non-utilitarian approach rules of (laughs) war, our intuitions about right and wrong conduct, but they end up, of necessity, trading on intuitions we have in peacetime cases about when it would be right to kill somebody to prevent somebody else from being killed or things like that. And I think it's only so far you can go trying to reason by analogy from our intuitions and every in the everyday world to um, what should be the fundamental moral guidelines from for warfare in in once war is actually broken out. Once war is broken out, we're in a suboptimal situation. I mean, there's at least one side. Should not be fighting. Maybe both sides should not be fighting. Um, it's suboptimal because there's certainly a, a state of affairs that the states could have arrived at that wouldn't have involved war. So you're in a you're in a bad situation. And from from a utilitarian point of view, the, the point of the rules of war is to try to make this situation less bad, or um, to try to reduce as much the harm that's being done. And so the rules of necessity, proportionality, protecting uh, non-combatants, as well as the more specific laws of armed combat, for example, how prisoners of war are treated, you know, not shooting at hospital ships, not disguising yourself in civilian clothing, these sorts of things all help to uh, make war a little bit less horrible than uh, it otherwise would be. Right, right.
0: Um, uh, So let me then ask sort of uh, one of the Uh, one of the staple, the theoretical staples of um, uh, thinking about war, particularly in in the contemporary just war tradition, um, is sort of where, uh, one one, one of the places where Michael Walzer begins his discussion uh, with this um, claim about um, the moral equality of combatants, that the combatants, um, even in a case where Um, one side is fighting a just war and the other side (laughs) Uh, is not Um, uh, even the soldiers on the unjust on the aggressors side of the war are to be regarded from the theoretical perspective at least as morally equivalent or equal uh, to the combatants on the just side of the war Um, now uh, I confess that that's always struck me as a very odd thought Um, (laughs) I think uh, uh, in everybody's deepest uh, recesses of their mind they think this is an odd thought Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the utilitarian? thinks about the moral equality of soldiers? Yeah, that's an interesting question.
1: Um, but let me just uh, back up a little bit. Sure. So the uh, utilitarian view is, and, and this is made quite clear in Sidgwick. the utilitarian view is the rules of war, for example, um, restricting your military operations, those that have a kind of military point, re- reduce violence to... Um, so it's not excessive in relationship to the military target, and to discriminate um, between civilian and non-civilian targets, and to not ever directly target combatants and uh, non-combatants, not ever directly target non-combatants and try to reduce harm to them as as much as as possible. That these rules apply to to both sides. So even if hypothetically your side is fighting the morally right war, you still have to follow these rules. Right and on the other hand, if your side turns out to be fighting an immoral war, then your what we care about now, once the war begun, is that the soldiers adhere to this rule, and which means, in effect, that if they adhere to these rules, and they lose the war, they're not going to be punished. They're not they're not guilty of having done something criminal if they're had you know kept their act, military actions. Uh, within the appropriate guidelines, particularly haven't killed civilians or inflicted excessive or unnecessary harm on civilians. So from the utilitarian point of view, this is, um, you might say, sort of pragmatic concession to reality. We can't have two different sets of rules, Mm -hmm. really strict ones for the guys who are in the wrong and looser ones for the guys who are in the right. It just it wouldn't be feasible because both sides think they're on the right, and so and who's going to adjudicate that? Since you know they've already broken out into the war, so uh, and the
0: the war is the way they're trying to adjudicate it, exactly. So uh, you know, so the goal
1: is to here hear the rules, and you guys have to stick in within these. Now, so that's a kind of pragmatic argument. Um, Walzer thinks, and some uh, you know earlier just war theorists thought that that's not just pr- pragmatic, that there's a kind of moral basis for it, that the guys and gals were actually fighting, uh, it's not their job to decide whether the war is right or wrong. Um, right. You get this, um, I remember in um, in Shakespeare's Henry V, there's a scene where Henry has disguised himself as an ordinary soldier, and he goes and, and talks to some of his men the night, the, the night before the big battle, and he's saying in the conversation he says something like, "Well, you know, don't you think your king's cause is just?" And they say, "Well, that's not for us to decide. Right, you know, right. if it's a bad war, then it's on him. Um, we just do, we just fight as we're told. It's, it's really not our job to judge whether his cause is just or not." So that's the kind of thinking uh, behind Walzer's position: is that um, ordinary soldiers. Don't have the responsibility, and they're not really in position to be able to judge uh, whether the war is just or not. Their job is just to fight the war in, in accordance with with these rules. And so, there's the moral equality idea is that the soldiers on the unjust side and the soldiers on the just side are equal, are morally equal, and that they both do nothing wrong if they, as long as they fight within the in accord with the rules. Um, now, uh, Jeff McMahon has written uh, an important book about, I don't know, six years or a little bit more ago, you know, challenging uh, that argument and, and, and really uh, critiquing it in, in great, great detail. The, um, I mean, McMahon's right to, in one way that, of course, it, it seems plausible to say that if the war is wrong to fight, then people shouldn't be fighting it, and soldiers are human beings like anybody else. Um, And so, therefore, they shouldn't be fighting in the war that's uh, unjust. But I don't see that the times don't see that as a deficiency of the rules of war. Right. Man's sort of critical of the rules of war. He thinks they don't capture the real morality of the situation. But that's not the job of the rules of of war. Um, It's not to the rule of the rules of war is not to say to the Nazis, you shouldn't soldiers, you you shouldn't be fighting in the first place. Um, the job of the rules of war is to try to mitigate the damage they do and get both sides to kind of adhere to these standards. Um, so you have this important debate that's, that's drawn a lot of attention between Walzer's statement of the kind of classical uh, moral equality advanced position and McMahon's very robust and important critique of it. And utilitarians are have kind of nuanced view. They see some you know, truth in what Walls are saying, as well as some truth in what McMahon is saying. Because for them, the rules of war have this, I guess you might say, more instrumental justification. Right. Right? They're not trying to capture what, what McMahon thinks of as the deep morality of the situation. Whereas from the point of view, there's, there's no morality to the situation other than whatever's allowed or prohibited by the best possible set of rules for, for warfare. <laughs>
0: Was it, um, it? There was. A, I have to say, it was odd in reading a book about war that I um, laughed out loud. But um, uh, there's a, a quotation. I think it's Walzer against McMahon, where Walzer refers to McMahon's view as what war looks like if it were. It would look like if it were a peacetime activity.
1: Yes, I th- that's, that's very. Yeah, I thought it was very clever. <laughs> um, I think it really strikes home. There's. There's. Um, you know a lot of recent work and there's an you know anthology on this uh, cited in, in my book you know where philosophers in the just war theory they're really interested in the kind of details of when would somebody be morally liable to uh, to violence in a in a war situation they would like war to mete out violence only to people who deserve it or in some way have made themselves liable for it, uh, or for whom would be just for them to risk a certain level of violence. So they, so basically, they like violence in war to be measured against what what individual desert calls for, and that's sort of what Walzer has in mind. I think right. you're imagining that war is sort of like a peace time activity, and you want it to. Uh, Meet our standards of what would be right and wrong in peaceful activities, and have war somehow, you know, distribute um, harms according to you know what people deserve or, or uh, what they've made themselves liable to. And that's just—I think that's just crazy. That, that <laughs> um, you know, war can't possibly ever do that. And yeah. to say, well, anyway, we're going to talk about this, or it's kind of theoretically important. It just seems like. Uh, a kind of irrelevance to to the war. I mean, um, so again, the utilitarians stress the kind of enormous in, you know benefit of having combatants on both sides adhere to these to the law of armed combat to the to the uh, you know moral principles underlying the received rules of war, and that. What we're trying to do is take, again, as I said before, take a, a bad situation and somewhat ameliorate it to make it a little less bad than it would be otherwise. Right. And there's really no other kind of moral concern than that. And, and the kind of hypothetical question of what, you know, what an individual would deserve or not deserve, um, it just seems, you know, it's, it's so theoretical, it's kind of out of
0: space from my point of view. right. So, right. Well, Bill, it's it's been great um, talking to you about your book. Um, I know this is a a, a, a a cruel thing to ask somebody who's just published a wonderful book, uh, but one final question um, before we sign off on this episode of New Books in Philosophy. Uh, w- what's your next project? Will you continue working on these issues or move to something new? I, I,
1: I may go on working on some of them. Um, some of the issues in the last chapter we didn't talk about, about um, what are... The obligations of, in particular, of officers when they're confronted with immoral or orders mm-hmm. or wrongful wars, and I think um, that could use some, you know, that could use some more thinking. There's not been very much written about that, certainly not from an utilitarian perspective, and that's something I would like like to pursue uh, in the future. But um, I'm a little bit older than you, Bob, and I'm just it's beginning my retirement. I'm now. Retired really in August, of just teaching <laughs> one semester a year for the next few
0: years. So it was a doubly cruel <laughs> question <laughs> out
1: of, out of the book writing uh, book
0: writing world. <laughs> well, um, uh, I will keep an eye out for uh, any any further discussions of uh, of these issues or anything else from you. Um, but for now. Um, Bill, I want to thank you uh, for your time today and uh, for making time uh, to talk to us on New Books and Philosophy about uh, really what is a, a, a very, very interesting, fantastic even uh, – new book um and thank you listener uh for joining us for our discussion uh of the book once again the book is by william h shaw uh he has been our guest and its title is utilitarianism and the ethics of war um published by routledge 2016 um i encourage everyone to go out and and take a look uh thank you and thank you bill